The following is a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine for a Reformed awakening. To learn more, call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit AllianceNet.org. All right, well, let's, uh, let's begin by praying. This is an, a hard topic for me to discuss for reasons that will uh, I'll try to make clear as we go. So let's, uh, we always need the Lord's help. I feel the need for the Lord's help as we approach this topic. So let's pray and then we'll uh, see what happens. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be here together. Grateful to be able to talk about important things, but things that are hard. You call us to be the kinds of people who try to bring comfort, try to bring restoration, try to point people to you in the midst of difficult and hard times. And Father, I pray that as we think about the challenging difficulty that is adultery and its aftermath, I pray that you would help us to know how to be the kinds of folks who can help. And Father, I Pray that you would help us in this uh, brief period of time to talk about the things that you want us to talk about and uh, to be helpful. Make us more equipped ministers of the word and greater lovers of you because of our time together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, so this is a really hard topic for me to talk about. Um, Everybody whines about not having enough time when they get assigned a topic. I didn't give me enough time. I'm going to do this in an hour. Everybody whines about the amount of time they've been assigned. This one is a really, really hard one for me to talk about in an hour. In fact, I'm under no illusions that we can complete um, all the different things that I think we need to talk about. So I'm not even going to tell you how many points I want to make because then the type A folks in here will just be frustrated when we don't get to it. So I'm just going to talk until I run out of time and then that'll be... Um, that'll be the notes. Um, this is also challenging because this is one of the most painful realities that we can address in life and in ministry is the aftermath of adultery. There are, there are elements in my ministry that I have become a sort of expert in that I never wanted to be an expert in. I never wanted to know a whole big bunch about all kinds of things I know a whole big bunch about now. And this is one of them. Um, I, uh, I just didn't think, as I thought about what it was going to be like to be a pastor, it didn't occur to me that I would be involved in the aftermath of as much adultery as I have been. I wasn't ignorant that it that it never happens. And I think, oh, that never happens. You're never doing that kind of stuff. I just didn't think it would happen as much. In fact, I really think, I've said this to my wife on a couple of occasions, if God had somehow revealed to me when I was 18 and had decided to go into pastoral ministry, if, if at 18 I would have known how many sobbing men and women would have been in my office or in my living room or uh, I would have been in their living room trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I really don't think I would have gone into ministry. I I think as an 18-year-old, I could not fathom 
that kind of pain and the weight of that kind of difficulty. And so the Lord was kind to uh, withhold from me what I was not ready for. I had a real taste of how painful adultery was because I had experienced it all growing up. One of my first memories in childhood uh, was as a three-year-old and my mother kicking my dad out of the house on Christmas night because she had decided to live happily ever after with her um, adulterous partner. And then uh, after that, their arrangement was they were both going to do that, and then he decided he had a pretty good deal uh, and was not going to leave his wife for her, and so my mother was alone and was angry about that. Um, My dad would would have been happy to have been restored in their marriage, but uh, she thought that if she waited long enough, this guy would um, would eventually leave his wife for her, and my mother's been dead now for five years, and that never happened. So uh, that was my first experience with adultery in our home. Uh, second experience with adultery was my dad's second wife. Uh, we uh, were outside playing, uh, came in, and my dad was sobbing on the sofa. He asked us to go back outside and play, and a couple hours later we came back and he was still sobbing and he said that uh, his second wife was leaving him for someone else. Uh, and people say, oh, it about killed me. This, I'm just telling you, it's not a cliche, this nearly killed my father. It actually changed him. He was not the same for the rest of his life. Uh, he loved uh, two women. Uh, both of them left him for other folks and it, uh, it really changed him in a bad way. Um, next experience with, with adultery was my uh, uncle's uh, adultery against my uh, aunt that I loved. Their, their marriage survived, but it survived with scars. And then I have two older brothers, and uh, each of them were involved in adultery, and each of their wives were involved in adultery. Um, my uh, grandparents were involved in adultery. That happened before I was born, but I heard about the aftershock of it. As far as we know, uh, I am the only member of my family to have been married that has not committed adultery, as far as we know. Uh, So this was just the environment of my home growing up. And so by the time I got to 18, I knew that this adultery thing was a mess. And that's why I say I don't know that I could have signed up to be doing this as much uh, as I have. Um, but that's the way it's worked out. Most of my um, counseling ministry uh, has been uh, with married couples in the aftermath of adultery. So I've spent a tremendous amount of time doing this. Um, and Ministry in the aftermath of adultery, it's not created equal. There's basically, there's two kinds of responses. There's a response to the couple who wants to try to work it out, and there is the response to the couple who, for one reason or another, does not want to try to work it out. Uh, How you respond to each one of those two big divisions is really different. I'm going to pick to talk today uh, about uh, response when the couple wants to work it out, when they say, hey, we're going to give this a shot. Um, And... Even then, that's hard enough. That is hard as it, uh, just about as hard as you can imagine in ministry. And in fact, if you can think of the fog of war, 
you'll have some kind of sense of what this is like. Things are happening fast. There's carnage everywhere. Uh, You're having to make decisions and focus on things that are urgent. Uh, One picture that I have in my mind when I think of this is this, if you've ever seen Gone with the Wind. Um, And partway through uh, the movie when um, Scarlett is asked to help deliver a baby, and she does not know how to deliver a baby, and she goes to uh, get the doctor who's at the train station where the Confederate soldiers are are wounded and they're just being unloaded uh, onto the train station. And this doctor is running around holding a rag on somebody's open chest wound. Somebody else is over here getting their leg amputated. They got people, they're throwing bodies in the church building and trying to work on them with no ether. And she said, I need you to help me come deliver this baby. And he said, I can't, you're going to have to do it. Look at me. There's no resources here. I got to do it. That's what ministry is like in the aftermath of adultery. When your phone rings and it's your friend or it's your church member and you found out that somebody's committed adultery, your week just got completely rewired. Um, You're going to have to figure a bunch of stuff out. Sermon prep isn't going to happen the way you thought it was. You're not going to bed when you thought you were going to go to bed. Um, you're going to have to be dealing with all kinds of things. I feel the weight of this. Just this week, we've been doing this with two couples. And uh, it's hard enough to do it with one couple, but we had two situations break in our context where we had these, um, in one case, it was a man uh, who cheated on his wife. In another case, it was a wife who cheated on her husband. Um, In one case, um, with the wife who was committing adultery, she has decided she's not going to work on their marriage uh, with the husband who's committed adultery. He's decided he does want to work on his marriage, and his wife agrees that they want to do that. So we've been having five alarm fires in our house uh, this past week. Uh, and, and I feel the weight of all that needs to happen. And so what I'm going to do here is, for as, as long as we can, until we run out of time, I'm going to go through issues that you need to have on the radar screen. We won't get to everything by a long shot, uh, but we'll go through as many as we can. And what I want you to understand is, keep in mind this fog of war imagery. Um, There's going to be times when you have to immediately do what's number four on our list, because that's the pressing matter. Uh, There's going to be other times where you have to do number two, Uh, or number one. Um, And there's no order to this. I mean, we've got a large uh, perspective that we're pursuing. We want reconciliation. We want restoration. Um, But how we get there uh, in the early weeks is going to be driven by the facts on the ground. And you don't necessarily have the freedom to say, you know what, we're going to answer that question in a couple weeks right now. I want to talk about this. Uh, Sometimes you just have to deal in that fog of war. Uh, There's a chest wound in front of you, and you just got to fix that. You're going to go over and deal with the guy with the head wound in a minute. You're going to go deal with the amputee after that. You're just going to have to make decisions and trust the Lord. Here is the first thing that, again, this is not necessarily a chronological ordering. It's just uh, not an order of importance, but we're just taking some things here. The first thing is you want to help couples... Look to Christ. And there are a couple of ways that this is important. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the innocent person in adultery as though it is the wife 
and the guilty person as though it is the husband. I know that there are wives who commit adultery. I just told you about my mother. I just told you about my grandmother. Uh, I just told you about my stepmother. I know wives commit adultery. And I just told you about that couple from this week. Uh, But I am not the smartest person in the whole world. and I'm going to get confused if I have to balance the genders. So I'm just going to say for our talk, I'm going to refer to the innocent person as her or the wife, and I'm going to refer to the adulterer as him or the husband, even though that's not always the way it works out. You want to help couples look to Christ, and the way you're going to help couples look to Christ is going to be asymmetrical based on whether we're talking about the guilty husband or the innocent wife. You want to help wives look to Jesus in their neediness and in their brokenness. if not the most, one of the most acute times of pain I've ever known in the life of an individual is the painful time when a wife finds out that her husband has been unfaithful. We, uh, even just this week, this, uh, this poor woman is just pacing around our living room she, the night before she'd cried and hyperventilated, uh, came this close to passing out. And she was cried out the next night and all she could do was just pace around, rub her face, couldn't talk. She's in pain. We had one young woman who uh, had just been married a few years. Um, she was nine months pregnant with their first kid. And uh, he confessed to her in our living room that he had had a one-night stand on a business trip the weekend before. And my wife and I thought, her reaction was so physical and so intense, we both thought she was going to deliver that baby in our living room. I mean, I thought the baby was coming. Uh, These women are in horrible pain. They are in a relationship that they believed was one of trust, and now that is gone. The trust is over. And what women often believe when they go through this situation, they don't always say it, they don't necessarily articulate it, they believe something like this. We're going to stay married, but happiness is over. We got married. I loved him, he loved me, I trusted him, he trusted me. And now he has betrayed me, and we're not going to have happiness again. It's not going to be the same. Uh, happiness is over, and it's uh, it, what it is, it's like the Cinderella picture hanging on the wall gets a hammer through it. And they see happily ever after go away. And what we have to do is help them understand that that is not true. But we have to be careful how we tell them it's not true. We can't tell them it's not true in the way Joel Osteen thinks it's not true. We, uh, it's, we don't make a promise of your best life now. We, we, and the reality is things aren't ever going to be the same. That, that part is true. Things aren't the same after this. And they won't ever be the same after this. But that doesn't mean you can't have meaningful happiness and meaningful joy. It doesn't mean you can't be happier than you, are, than you were before. But if we're going to understand that, if we're going to help women understand that, then we, we don't need Joel Osteen. We need 
the Apostle Paul. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this, is, this might be a text that you would turn to. Uh, there are others, this is just one example. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 1, Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Wouldn't you love to know? <laughs> what that was. I'm so curious every time I read that. Like, can you just say one thing? You know? Oh, well. Man may not utter them. Okay. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Although if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's the most offensive passage in Scripture if you don't trust the Lord. If you don't trust the good power of God, there is nothing more offensive that you could say to a woman struggling in the aftermath of adultery because she, when she reads weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, she is not thinking about those things generally. She is thinking about those very, very specifically. She's thinking about the calamity of her wrecked marriage. And the Apostle Paul does this shocking thing. He says, there's this bad thing that happened to me. A messenger of Satan. And it, it came to me. He doesn't ever identify the bad thing as good. There's no moral inversion. Uh, there is this bad thing happened to me. And three times he pleaded with the Lord to take it away. God, take it away. God, take it away. God, take it away. And God said no. And what, what we're supposed to say after God says no is we'll curse God and die then. That's what you're supposed to say. That's the line. That's Job's wife. Well, fine then. If you won't take the bad thing away, then forget about you because you're not good. Or you're not in control. The Apostle Paul doesn't go in either of those directions. He moves in the direction of contentment. I'm content <laughs> with weaknesses, insults, hardships, and persecutions and calamities. Not because the bad things are good, but because the God who superintends them is. God is able. It is possible. In fact, this is the way it works uh, in God's world is in one act, 
you can have two separate actors and two separate intentions behind those actors. So in this act of the thorn in the flesh, there is God and there is a messenger of Satan. There is the intention of the messenger of Satan to harm Paul, and there is the intention of God who is sovereign over the messenger to humble him and encourage him in Christ, to teach him that it is a good thing to be weak. It's a good thing to be weak because when you're weak, that's when you know you're strong. How? Because it's not about your power, but about Jesus' power in you. This is one text among 10,000 in the Bible that teaches that God is kind to us in suffering. When we're in pain, when wives who are wondering how their husband could do this, what their friends are going to say, what their kids are going to say if they find out, how this could ever be good again, um, they don't have to wait for some future time to know the blessing of God. They can trust God and know that he is blessing them in the moment of their weakness. And this is encouraging and hopeful for women like this because um, I think probably, I don't know, I'm not trying to get in a debate with anybody about this, but I think probably as I read the Bible, the greatest demonstration of the power of God is his ability to bring good things out of evil things. I don't know what, what's bigger. How could you take something so opposite, evil, moral evil, and bring good out of it? This is what God in his character and in his power is able to do. And so we point women, or any innocent person, we point them to the power of God to bring good out of evil, to, to draw near to you in your pain, uh, to be more for you in your pain than your husband was for you in your joy. Pain, adultery, shatters the mirage of independence that we have. <laughs> Look at my marriage. Look how great we're doing. It is a kindness of God when he takes away through suffering anything in your life that competes with your dependence on him. That's true in adultery and it's true in every other area. We want to help couples look to Christ. We want to help innocent wives look to Christ in that way. We want to help husbands look to Christ in their neediness and in their sin. And they, you know, they... Certainly, if they're broken in their sin, they need to know that comfort that we just talked about. But they need something else that their wives might not need, and that is they need to depend on the Lord and look to Him in their sin. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So many men I know. In fact, in the kindness of God, I have not committed adultery. 
And if I can make it to the end of my life and not commit adultery, then I have said to Lauren, I think one of the main reasons for that will be that um, I've seen so many people that have. And I've seen that it's all a lie. I'm telling you what. um, Right now, today, adultery feels very, very far from me. Because I've been sitting with these couples. I've been sitting with these people. And everybody is crying. We've got people vomiting. Because they are so sick over what has happened. And I'm going, okay. I am cured of any temptation for, to adultery for this week. I've been inoculated. Uh, I don't let any man think, who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. I don't want to be cocky. But I'm just telling you right now, it feels very far from me. I don't want my wife puking in our backyard because I betrayed her trust. Um, so many of these men are going, I just wish I could go back and undo it. Why did I do it? Why did I do it? I wish I could go back and undo it. And here's the thing. Do you know what? Wishing that you could go back and undoing it is not the method God has given you to deal with your sin. It's a waste of your time to think that. I get it. I understand it. I'm not yelling at anybody. I'm just saying it's a waste of your time to do it. What is an effective use of your time is to appear before the throne of grace and say, God, I broke your law. I lied to my wife. I sinned against her. Would you please forgive me? And when you say those words and when you believe they are true, you're forgiven. God doesn't give us redos in life. He doesn't give us a rewind button where we back up to the time when it didn't happen and we choose differently. Uh, He doesn't give us the mechanism of just expunging it from our memory. Uh, he, He doesn't give us the mechanism where it's just taken out of reality and everything else is true except that. He gives us the mechanism of confession and forgiveness. And so the effective way to help men respond to this is to name their sin to the Lord, to ask him to forgive them, and to believe that because Jesus lived, died, and rose, they are forgiven. When men commit adultery, and women too, when you commit adultery, you feel guilty and dirty. And God gives you a mechanism to be forgiven and clean. And it's this right here. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, our sin. If you feel guilty and dirty, you want to be forgiven and clean, it takes confession. And this is also something where we have to double back and talk to the wife about this. Because after a husband does this, He is forgiven and clean. I've got to let that sink in a minute because this is controversial. Somebody's upset with me I said this. If a husband who has committed adultery from the heart confesses his sin to the Lord and asks for forgiveness and believes it, he is forgiven and clean. He is as clean in the eyes of the Lord as he was before he committed adultery. And he is as clean in the eyes of the Lord as his wife is. 
And if you don't like that, then you have a problem with the atonement of Jesus Christ. Not with me. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. This is Jesus, folks. It's true for filthy little husbands and their adultery. It's true for your gossip. It's true for your lack of forgiveness. It's the way it works. This is the way sin works. We are not allowed. A wife is not allowed to disagree with the judgment of Jesus about her husband. If Jesus thinks your husband is forgiven and clean, then guess what? He is forgiven and clean. And you've got to get on board. Now, that's not the way I'm saying that the first afternoon. Okay? Because when your husband commits adultery, you're supposed to be angry and sad. God is angry and sad about sin. But we've got, I got to have your agreement that you're going to move towards agreeing with uh, God's judgment about this. So I'm just saying that that's, that's the goal. That's not the ministry intervention at that point. So pregnant wife finds out five minutes ago, she's hyperventilating on my living room floor. True story that I just mentioned. Um, and I, I can't say to her, well, well, he just said, you know, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Why are you... Here, let's get up and be a big girl about this. Like, that's not that. This is a statement of goal, not immediate intervention. Does that make sense? We understand when um, a wife is overwhelmed with sorrow. And here's one big difference. One big difference is the Lord is omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. A wife is not omniscient. She needs time for her emotions to catch up with the information that she just learned. The Lord doesn't have to doesn't have that problem because he's not limited by, uh, by a lack of knowledge. But that's where we're going. Ultimately, we have to be the people who know when you're forgiven, you're really forgiven. Doesn't mean there's no more work to do. Doesn't mean he doesn't have trust that he needs to earn. Doesn't mean he doesn't need to make other relationships right. But it does mean in the heavens, he is forgiven and clean. All right. You need to help couples, number two, freely confess sin. Help couples freely confess sin. If you want to think of a passage like Proverbs 28, verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses them and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Husbands who are guilty of adultery need to name their sin. We talked about that a moment ago uh, in his interaction with the Lord, but now we need to move out from the relationship with the Lord to uh, your relationships with other people. And and the way I talk about this is um, uh, we need to think of the sin like a circle. And... I, I have guys right now, in fact, this guy that just blew it this past week, he's working on this right now today, of a list of everybody that's in the circle of that sin. Who all was touched by your sin? It's your, your wife's in there, for sure. You sinned against her. You broke your vows. But who else? Uh, well... And really, honestly, what the, this, this is, uh, there's no like master list. Uh, it's just, it's going to be on a case-by-case basis. Um, his in-laws are in that list because they know. Um, and they're ticked. And when you're a dad, 
and your son-in-law commits adultery against your daughter, that's exactly what you're supposed to be. Uh, so his in-laws are in the list. Uh, their closest friends are in the list because he told all their friends, this is over, I'm not doing this, this isn't going to happen, and they all had to come and circle the wagons and try to get him on board. He's graciously on board now. But their closest friends are in the list. Their um, pastor is in the list. Um, they don't, this couple doesn't live near us. Uh, they flew down to get some help in the aftermath of the craziness that ensued. Um, but their pastor is on the list because he sinned against his pastor and rejecting his counsel and being unkind to him. Um, the person you committed adultery with is on the list. That gets complicated. We'll try to get to that in due course. Um, here's the thing. When you're making a plan about confessing your sin, you're not just confessing the sin of adultery. Honey, I violated the seventh commandment. I committed adultery against you. I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? That's just the first one. There's also all of the other sin in the environment of the adultery that allowed the adultery to happen. So for weeks, I have been lying to you about how I was spending my time, about where I was. For weeks, I've been spending our money uh, on someone else doing other things. We need to ask forgiveness for all of those things. And then also, the faithful partner, the wife, needs to confess sin. Now, bear with me here. This is another controversial one. I don't want anybody getting upset with me needlessly. All right, so just, uh, you might be upset with me, but stick with me for a few minutes and decide. Don't, don't decide you're upset right now. Um, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time in my experience, there is sin for the innocent person to confess. And this is Matthew 7, 1 to 5. Um, uh, just because you have a log in your eye doesn't mean your brother doesn't have a splinter in his. Jesus says, first take the log out of your eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of somebody else's eye. So just because we've got a husband who's really fouled it up and his sin is in the headlines doesn't mean there's not sin in the small print of the wife's life. Of the wife's life. And let me give you some examples of some common areas where after the husband, again, wives do this too, but just so we can be, just so I can stay sane through the presentation here. Um, after the husband has taken the log out of his eye, then we need to see if there's any splinters in the wife's eye. And here are some common things in the environment of adultery uh, that a wife might need to confess. Um, perhaps she was sexually withdrawn in the lead up to adultery. Now, here's where things get tricky. John just said this, the soul who sins shall die. All right? I am responsible for my sin and you are responsible for your sin. Have you ever read these wacky interpreters that uh, try to blame Bathsheba for David's adultery? Have you read any of those? 
Uh, she shouldn't have been up there taking a bath. She should have known better, all that kind of thing. Who knows what was in Bathsheba's heart? I have absolutely no idea. Let's assume the worst. We're not told this in the Bible, so I'm not ready to go there. Uh, but let's just go with the wacky interpreters that she knew the king was up there and she went down there and she went up on the roof of her house and she got naked and she took a bath hoping that he would see her. Even if that's true, does that make David not responsible for his sin? No. Sin comes out of your heart. When you sin, you are responsible for it. When I sin, I am responsible for it. You can woo me. You can tempt me. You can make my life difficult. But you cannot make me sin. The soul who sins shall die. So even a wife who is sexually withdrawn from her husband is not responsible for his adultery. He is responsible for his adultery. But is she allowed to be sexually withdrawn? No. This is, that's, so she's got her own trouble with a passage like 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 5, where we're supposed to be mutually giving ourselves to one another. And if she wasn't doing that, uh, then this is an opportunity to confess her sin. Not because her sin is, makes his sin happen, but because it's in the environment of the sin, and we want everybody to grow and change. We want everybody to do business with the Lord. Does that make sense? I don't want you to think I'm blaming emotionally or physically distant wives or husbands for their spouse's adultery. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying we got to deal with what's on the table, and uh, that's one of the things that's often on the table. Here's, um, uh, here's another one. This happens all the time. Husband commits adultery. He goes and he confesses the adultery to his wife. And, and that's, uh, when that's, when we have found out about the adultery, for example, when someone comes to me and says, I cheated on my wife, I need help. I know they've got to confess their adultery to their wife. I give them the choice about doing that alone or with me in the room. Do you know in 15 years, nobody has ever said they want to do it alone? In 15 years, everybody always wants me there. I've never had anybody say, let me talk to her alone, because they're scared to death, and they want like a ref in the room. Um, even with the pastor in the room, I have seen reactions come out of women and men, but honestly, the worst ones have been women. I'm just telling the story here. I didn't make the rules. I'm just telling you. The strongest reactions have been from women when I've been in the room, reactions that would make the paint peel off the wall. I mean, we're talking kicking people in strategic areas of their body repeatedly. We're talking words that uh, four, five, six letters, all kinds of letters. Uh, words that we shouldn't say, filthy talk. Um, I mean, all kinds of horrible things uh, that get said. And uh, I was just, I was reading, somebody posted on social media this morning uh, the stages of grief. And it's anger, it's denial, it's, there was, they had more on this particular uh, schema than I'd ever seen before. I think there was like 15 stages. Uh, 
and, and they were saying, hey, this is for people who've lost a loved one. It's for people who've gone through adultery. It's for people who've lost their job. I mean, anytime you lose something precious, it doesn't have to be a life. You go through these stages of grief. And I just looked at the stages of grief that are, you're supposed to go through. And not one, not one place on the stages of grief was faith, hope, and love. At no place in the stage of grief was what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. I'm content. Not one point on the stages of grief was Job's statement, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You don't have to sin in your response to your husband's adultery. Just because you've been sinned against does not give you a blank check to sin. You can respond, and we need to help wives respond and husbands respond with faith, hope, and love to the adultery of their spouse. And uh, (laughs) um, one of the most amazing women I've ever met in my life, that's what she did. She reached over and she grabbed her husband's hand and she said, I love you. We're going to figure this out. I'm very sad. Uh, But she's like, this story does not get to be the story that defines our life. Jesus Christ is for us, and we're going to figure it out. Good night. Where does that come from? It comes from the Spirit of God. And, uh, and that is possible. And it's, it's not to say that it would have been wrong if she would have had a display of anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. It's not to say that it would have been wrong if she would have started sobbing in that moment. And she had her tears. Uh, but it is to say that you don't have to Uh, have sinful anger. You don't have to have sinful despair. You can respond in faith, hope, and love. And we need to help wives confess the sin in their life when they don't respond that way. That is not the first thing we do. Uh, It's probably not the second or the third thing that we do. But it needs to be on the list and we need to get to it. You know, this, not everything that, I'm just going to say this right now because I, I just saw some people looking at me funny and I don't know what that means. Maybe you got to go to the bathroom. But, um, <laughs> um, but there is such a thing in the Bible as a word well-timed. Okay, and here's what that means. It means that not every important thing that needs to be said needs to be said right now. Apples of gold and a setting of silver are a word well-timed. We, we don't just lob golden apples at people. We need the setting of silver, which is the timing of the right word. Jesus says in, in John chapter 16, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. It, it, is, a, it is a mark of foolishness to think you just need to puke out everything that you notice. It's a wise counselor, a counselor like Jesus, that will say, okay, she's freaking out right now. I'm going to stop her if she's kicking him. Um, but now is not the time for like a stern rebuke on this one. I'm gonna, we'll just put that in the toolbox over here and we'll, we'll get to that. We don't need to get to it right now. Does that make sense? Okay. You want to help couples freely confess their sin. Here's the next one. And this is, I'm going to be quick here. Um, but this is where you're going to spend a whole big bunch of time. You need to help couples freely forgive. So I'll just refer you to Matthew chapter 18 and the parable of the unforgiving servant who gets thrown in jail 
because he was forgiven a massive debt, but would not forgive a very small debt. And Jesus says, shockingly, breathtakingly, so will my heavenly Father do to you if you don't forgive your brother from the heart. So this is more offensive stuff in the Bible. It's, like, it's almost like God doesn't care if he steps on our toes. Um, God, that is a passage that is written to people who just discovered that their spouse committed adultery. And Jesus says, you've got to forgive. The Apostle Paul likes the idea. And in Ephesians 4, we'll see you've got to let go of anger and bitterness and rage and malice and slander and clamor. You've got to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. You have to forgive. In my experience, people struggle to forgive in the aftermath of adultery. Um, Let me tell you what they say. What they say is this sin is such a big deal. This is such a high level of betrayal, and our kids know, and our friends know, and people are looking at me in the store, and they make a big deal out of the sin. And the sin is a big deal. Remember, the Apostle Paul argued for trusting in the Lord in the midst of suffering, never by negotiating away the evilness of evil. So you can't say it's going to be a real emphasis on the wickedness of sin that's going to lead you to a lack of forgiveness, because nobody appreciates the wickedness of sin more than God does, and he forgives. So that can't be it. It's, it's not like when you don't forgive, you're just somebody who really, really gets the way sin works. Because God knows more about it than you do, and he's ready to forgive. So when people don't forgive, in my experience, it is the 2 Corinthians 12 problem and the Matthew 18 problem. Here's the 2 Corinthians 12 problem. I don't believe that God could bring good out of this. I'm embittered because I feel stuck in an irredeemable situation. And this is why we need to come back to that first point again and again and again. Do you know that God is good? Do you know that God is in control? Do you know that God does not know how to fail to take care of you? Even in the midst of pain. If if we know how to use pain to help ourselves, then God knows. What's that mean? Five years ago, I think it was five years ago, I had uh, tonsillectomy. I'd had strep throat for three months, 104, 105 degree temperatures. I was passing out, uh, couldn't swallow. Uh, They kept giving me these nuclear grade injections in the rear end, which hurt like the dickens, and that didn't help. I'd get better for like a couple days. My fever would drop, and then it'd come back with a vengeance. And finally, you know, you can't just keep going with strep throat. You, it, you'll, it'll lead to kidney failure, heart failure. And so they said, we've got to do something. This is, you can't just have strep throat for three months. Like, we've got to do something. You're in trouble. And so uh, they sent me to an ear, nose, and throat specialist, and they said, we're going to have to take your tonsils out. They said, this is going to be um, a very painful procedure. This is likely to be the most pain you're going to be in in your entire life. He said, I'm going to go in, and I'm going to... He said, adult tonsillectomy is way worse than childhood tonsillectomy because adults, your tonsils keep growing deeper into your head. 
And so he said, I'm going to go and I'm going to use essentially a soldering iron and burn two holes, two one-inch holes in your body's most sensitive tissue. And he said, for you, it's going to be worse because I'd had strep throat 25 times in my life. And he said, for every time you've had strep throat, there's going to be scar tissue. So I'm going to have to burn through all of that and hollow out. Your, I'm like imagining like a really hot bulldozer in my mouth. That's what, like the, the picture that's in my head. And he said, um, you are going to feel for two weeks like you've got a hot poker in your throat. And he said, I'm going to give you the most powerful narcotics it is possible for me to give you. But he said, I still have grown men calling me in tears, begging me for help. <laughs> this is a guy who gets paid if I do the surgery, you know. And so I must have looked at him with some kind of despair. Because he said, I'm not trying to scare you. But he said, it's going to hurt. And he said, I don't want you to wake up and believe that I misled you. And so I said, okay. And then I did the surgery. And I woke up, and he was no liar. Oh, my goodness, that man was a truth teller. <laughs> I'm just telling you. Anybody ever had adult tonsillectomy? Oh. I mean, it's like got post-traumatic stress disorder up here. It's, uh, it's intense. Uh, but here's the thing. Nobody in here, when I tell you that, thinks that I'm, like, mentally damaged uh, or that I'm a masochist. Because you trust that I have enough concern for myself to put myself through a series of intense difficulty to have something even better on the other side. Well, if stupid, limited, sinful me can do that, can we not trust the Lord to use pain? in our lives to bring about good. And so when people don't forgive, it's because they're missing that piece and then they're missing the Matthew 18 piece. And the Matthew 18 piece is this. Why was the unforgiving servant so unforgiving? And when you read the narrative, we didn't take the time to read it, but when you read the narrative, you find out it's because he was only thinking about what he was owed and not what he had been forgiven. God never asks us to forgive more than he has forgiven us, ever. And so here's the thing. This journey, I think this journey of forgiveness is a journey. I say to women who are feeling angry and upset, let's imagine that these emotions and this experience that you're having right now is you standing on the top of one mountain of anger. But I want you to look off, and way out there on the horizon is another mountain peak, and that is the mountain peak of forgiveness. And you can see like a canopy of trees between the peak where you're standing and that peak where you want to be. And in, underneath that canopy, there is rocks in the middle of the trail, there's streams, there's logs that have fallen over on the trail, and we're going to have to figure out how to get over all those. But are you willing to walk that direction together. And if somebody says, yeah, that's, you're in good shape. You have to have it all figured out the first day. Uh, you don't, she doesn't have to be clacking her heels about what the Lord did the first day. But if we're, if we're committed to holding hands and walking on the journey together, that's a good thing. 
And if after a long season of walking on that journey together, if you still have a wife or a husband who is insistent that they won't forgive, then I will show you somebody who's obsessed with the sins that have uh, been committed against them and they're not thinking at all about the sins that they've been forgiven. Ultimately, it's a heart of arrogance that needs to consider afresh the forgiveness that we've all received in Christ. And when you realize that you swim in a reservoir of forgiving grace, you'll have some buckets of forgiving grace to pour out on others when they sin against you. Um, Next, I'm going to skip some things here. Um, Help couples get involved in meaningful relationships. People need to be uh, in church. They need to be in church Hebrews 10.25, don't neglect the meeting of yourselves together. It's good for you to hear sermons that don't have anything to do with your problem but invite you to faithfulness in other areas. It's good for you to fellowship with other believers and to pray and to sing. And people need to be in close, uh, tight relationships with individuals. Hebrews 3.12 says to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that you might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If I'm not walking with you in a relationship and being open and honest with you about my struggles, then you can't, you can't encourage me in that way. So we need corporate relationships, we need individual relationships, and that's not just the counseling. That is, I want to get husbands involved in close accountability relationships with other men. I want to get wives involved in close discipling and accountability relationships with other women so that we can talk about these things. And we've got a network of support, a network of support, by the way, that's going to extend beyond the sort of recovery period that we're talking about and into just living life together. We want men who are going to help build systems into this guy's life over the long haul that direct his heart away from the faithlessness he exhibited in adultery and towards faithfulness and the long-term commitment to the Lord and to his marriage. We want to help couples grow in intimacy. And I'll land the plane here. I'm going to try to do this in, uh, in a minute. Literally one minute. Uh, it's not a euphemism. Uh, in one, that's what we've got. Help couples grow in intimacy. Through talking. Couples have to start talking. One of the big questions that people have is, I don't trust him anymore. What do I do now? Well, here's one thing that's helpful. This is one thing that we've done to talk with with folks about this, is trust is not a zero-sum game. You can have trust in growing measure and in shrinking measure. And it's possible to rebuild trust after it's been eroded. So we say to, don't think of trust like a piece of property that you own or don't own. Think of it like a bank account. And so you can have a bank account that has a whole lot of money in it, or you can have a bank account that's overdrawn. In the aftermath of adultery, husbands have overdrawn their bank account of trust. Uh, And so here's what that means. You can trust nothing that he says. If he's been lying to you for weeks, months, years, don't trust him. Uh, This is uh, Ronald Reagan. This is the Ronald Reagan School of Biblical Counseling. Trust and verify, okay? Um, I can't trust you. Your words are meaningless. You've been lying to me. So when you say you broke it off with her, I appreciate you telling me that, but I'm going to need some kind of outside corroboration for for that. a lot of times, the uncomfortable reality is the outside corroboration is time. If over time you demonstrate faithfulness to me, then I start to trust you again. But I don't trust you today, not any further than I can throw you, and I can't throw you very far. 
Um, and so what this is, is a season of the wife asking a bunch of questions and the husband giving happy answers. Happy answers. So when she says, you were at the grocery store, that's supposed to take 20 minutes, it took 30 minutes, where were you? I say to the wife, you have to ask that question. Don't sit there and go, well, you know, he's trying to do better, and uh, I'm just going to sit up. If you have the question, ask. You don't, he doesn't deserve your trust, so ask the question. And when she asks the question, you're not allowed to get annoyed, buddy. Why don't, why don't you believe me yet? She doesn't believe you because you trained her not to believe you. And so now you've got to train her again to believe you. And so when she says, uh, where were you? Say, well, honey, I got lost in the dressing aisle. Because I don't know how anybody finds anything in that aisle anyway. I'm like, I have stood at that aisle, like looking at those. You know, I don't know how anybody finds anything. Um, um, and I had to ask the general manager for help, and it wasn't pretty. And, and I always say, too, like, don't just answer her questions happily with understanding, but then one-up her. So give her more evidence than she's asked for. So, and hey, you might think that I used my phone to do something I shouldn't have, so here's my phone. You can look at the call log. Um, if you answer her questions in an unhappy way, she's gonna, you're, just, you're making more withdrawals on your trust account, and you don't want to do that. So there's so much more that we could talk about. We didn't talk about sex. We didn't talk about time together. We didn't talk about kids. didn't talk about... Um, how you keep emotions in check biblically. Um, there's so much we didn't talk about, but that's a start, and God willing, it's helpful. Father in heaven, pray that you'd watch over us. Pray that you would help us. I pray for the people in this room that you'd protect us from the sin of adultery. I pray that um, for any who are in the aftermath of adultery or who are helping those who are, that you give much grace, much grace in Jesus, grace that is greater than our sin. And we pray it in his name. Amen. This has been a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold to the historic creeds and confessions and who proclaim biblical doctrine in today's church. The Alliance hosts conferences, produces radio and internet broadcasts, and publishes online and in print. We continue only with your support. To give a financial gift or learn more, call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit AllianceNet.org.